This is episode 229 of IDRA Class Notes. So at Harvard, I was exposed and met people who were from the Caribbean, who were Afro-Latinx, who were Central American, who were undocumented, or whose families came from various different parts of Latin America that I hadn't really been exposed to before. I learned so much just from conversations that we had, events that we hosted. So I think not having a diverse cohort of students is really to the detriment of students themselves and the university as a whole. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the IDRA Class Notes podcast. I'm Paige Seconds-Clay, IDRA's Chief Legal Analyst. We are continuing our series of episodes on education and the law, where we unpack the stories of youth, educators, and advocates in our nation's landmark civil rights and education cases. We have several special guests with us on the podcast today who will help us understand what's truly at stake in the lawsuits filed by the so-called Students for Fair Admission organization against Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. Oral argument for these cases will be held on October 31st, 2022. You heard it right, folks. Our nation's highest court will be listening to advocates argue the merits of diversity in higher education on Halloween. Even though the prospect of this Supreme Court deciding the fate of millions of Black and Brown students' access to higher education may sound a little scary, I assure you that today we've got no tricks, only treats. I'm so proud to introduce Micaiah Lyons, a third-year law student at the Howard University School of Law, and IDRA's education law intern, who will facilitate today's important conversation. Micaiah played a leading role in preparing IDRA's contributions to an amicus brief filed by the Education Civil Rights Alliance in the cases pending before the Supreme Court. Her work included reviewing the extensive record developed in the courts below, focusing on the stories and testimony of students who have benefited from affirmative action would almost certainly have been negatively impacted if the Supreme Court reverses this long-standing doctrine. You can read the brief and learn more about the case and the resources connected with this podcast. But here's the good news. You don't have to read the entire brief to hear these student stories because today we are so, so fortunate and grateful that two students, one from UNC and one from Harvard, who participated as amici or interveners in the cases, are on the podcast with us today They are joined by their attorney from the Educational Opportunity Project at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Welcome to the podcast, Micaiah, and I'll hand it off to you to introduce our special guests. Thank you so much, Paige. Um, I'd like to start by introducing Taylor, who is Associate Counsel at the Lawyers Committee itself, who is a student and a graduate of Harvard and Andrew, who is a student intervener and a graduate of the University of North Carolina. Thank you all so much for being here today, and thank you so much for sharing your your stories that are so, so important. And so, Taylor, I'd like to talk to you first. Can you tell us a little bit about the Lawyers Committee and really help our listeners understand what's at stake in this case? I know that you have your own story of pursuing representation in higher education. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Micaiah, for having me here. And thank you to our clients, our wonderful clients, for all the work that you all do in telling your stories. And so, like you said, my name is Taylor Dumpson. I serve as Associate Counsel at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. 
which is a national uh, civil rights legal organization founded in 1963 by John F. Kennedy to mobilize the private bar of attorneys to engage in the fight for civil rights. I'm one of the uh, attorneys that are working on the Educational Opportunities Project, who is involved in the upcoming affirmative action challenges that are headed to the Supreme Court, as Paige said, on Halloween. And I'm also a hate crime survivor and former Lawyers Committee client, and the Lawyers Committee was able to represent me after I was targeted for hate crimes and online cyber harassment after becoming the first Black woman to be student government president. So it's really great to be able to be in community with fellow student leaders uh, in this space, to also be able to be on the fighting end to preserve things like affirmative action and race-conscious admissions. Thank you. Thank you so much. Could you talk to us a little bit about kind of what are some potential ramifications? I know it's a little, page says a little scary. So can you tell us a little bit about what's at stake here? Yes. So just for context, there are two cases. One um, case is challenging race-conscious admissions at a private school, which is Harvard, and another one is challenging race-conscious admissions at a public school. And so SFFA, Students for Fair Admissions, was strategic in trying to bring both a private and public challenge to this longstanding doctrine of affirmative action. And this goes back to 40 years, which is when the Supreme Court decided Regents of University of California versus Bakke, which explained that a university may consider race as one of many factors in a university's admissions process. Um, In 2003, the Supreme Court reaffirmed that decision in Grutter, and there the Supreme Court explained that the universities have a compelling interest in using race-conscious admissions programs to attain the unique educational benefits that flow from having a diverse student body. Now, SFFA is currently arguing, among other claims, that Grutter was wrongly decided and that it somehow violates the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. But that premise relies on um, an interpretation of the 14th Amendment that's race neutral. And as Justice Kentaji Brown-Jackson rejected yesterday in the Merrill versus Milligan oral argument, she made very clear that the framers themselves adopted the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment in a race-conscious way. So some of the key ramifications that are at stake is that any decision altering this landscape could potentially change college admissions and university admissions as we know it. And we could lose the ability to see a full picture of an individual, one that's shaped and molded by our lived experiences, those that are shaped by our racialized experiences. And our clients are going to be able to best speak to, and then I'm excited to hear from them, how their race is inextricably intertwined to what they even wrote about in their college admissions. At its core, I fear that we could lose sight of what affirmative action is really all about. It's about taking affirmative action to rid our systems of racial bias in order to ensure equal opportunity for all of us. Thank you so much, Taylor. Thank you for putting that into perspective for us. I know that um, it can be kind of a lot to summarize that, but, you know, long story short, there's a lot at stake here. And so I would love to talk to itself first. Could you tell us a little bit about your yourself and how you got involved with this case? Yeah, sure. And just echoing Taylor's point, thank you all so much for having me. It's a real honor and privilege to be here today. So thank you. And I think this is my first podcast recording. So added bonus. (laughs) But yeah, as you mentioned, my name is Itzel Vasquez Rodriguez. I use she, her pronouns. And I am one of the student amici on the Harvard Affirmative Action Admissions lawsuit. So I am a Harvard graduate class of 2017. But I am originally from a city called Lakewood, 
which is in the southeast or in southeast LA County, uh, next to a city called Long Beach. It's on unceded Tongva land, but we call it today Lakewood. And so I uh, attended public schools all my life, and I grew up in this sort of low to middle income area that was relatively diverse. And for me, coming to Harvard was sort of a unexpected turn of events. I had never planned or dreamed of going to Harvard. It actually wasn't until uh, my junior year of high school when someone told me, they said, you know, you said you're really smart, you do really well on tests, and you have fantastic grades, you should definitely apply to Harvard. And I thought at the time that that sounded ridiculous. I thought Harvard was too far. I thought it was too elite, too white. And then I, I did some digging and learned about Harvard's financial aid package and how they would sponsor students to go or pay a student's full tuition for all four years guaranteed if your family made under a certain income bracket. And uh, my family did at the time. So it seemed like a real possibility. So when I received my acceptance from Harvard, it was a no-brainer in that I couldn't say no. <laughs> I had to go, had to go to Harvard. It was the only out-of-state school that I applied to. And so I went. And the first student in my high school to attend Harvard for undergrad. And I believe I'm still the only student, unfortunately, to attend Harvard for undergrad. I was very much isolated and felt alone. And so going from my community in SoCal and heading over to Boston and to Harvard and Cambridge, it was a big culture shock, to put it lightly. I describe it to people as it felt like I was studying abroad in the same country. It was that different for me. And um, during my time at Harvard, I felt isolated and ostracized constantly and could very visibly see that I was one of the few BIPOC students on campus. And when I would walk in and around campus, people would ask me random questions and ask these sorts of like microaggressions, these questions of where are you really from and where is your family from? And people would try and guess what country my family was from, complete strangers. And so that happened a lot. <laughs> and essentially, like my whole social experience at Harvard was shaped by my identity, in part because I, I felt so isolated and just ostracized in that space. And so as a way to cope with that, I sought out Native American and Latine cultural groups on campus specifically. So. I knew that I needed to be around people who understood the culture that I come from and the area that I come from and my heritage uh, in order for me to feel comfortable enough to be in a place like Harvard and be around people who were so different from me and to be in such a white space. So I became involved with a lot of cultural student groups my first year on campus and continued to be so throughout my time in undergrad, which brings me to how I came to be involved in the case. So Harvard's affirmative action case was first filed back around 2015 when I was a sophomore. And so the lawyers committee hosted an event on campus to share information about the case, about what this meant, and to try and see if there were any students on campus who wanted to get involved or wanted to try and help protect uh, race conscious admissions at Harvard. And so I had heard about the event through different cultural and student affinity groups and decided to go. And there was a sign-up sheet at the end of the event where the lawyers committee was asking students to sign up if we thought we'd be interested. And so I put my name down 
not necessarily thinking that now around seven years later, I would still be <laughs> involved in the case and, and talking to folks about it still. So it's been a long journey, but it started with, you know, something as simple as just putting my name down on a piece of paper to see how I could be involved. Thank you so much for sharing. And just to share with our listeners, I know you mentioned that you were one of the uh, few BIPOC students on campus. Could you share how you identify personally? Yes, of course. So I identify as Chicana or Mexican-American of Cora descent. So my family can tie or can trace our lineage back to the Cora tribe, which is a, a tribe in the state of Nayarit in Mexico. So I identify as Chicana. I also identify more broadly as Latina. My family's from Mexico, but we also have indigenous roots and ties that I hold near and dear to my heart. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for sharing your story. I know that, you know, that was probably not an easy way or an easy undergraduate experience, but I am so grateful that you signed your name. Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in this case? Yeah, I am happy to. First of all, thank you for having me. My name is Andrew. You see him pronouns. I'm currently calling in from Lexington, Kentucky, which is where I live part of the time, the other part of the time in, in D.C. for work. I mostly grew up in Lexington. I moved around a little bit when I was uh, younger, but moved to Lexington when I was in middle school. I like to say Lexington is like home base because it's where I voted for the first time, where I came out of the closet. And I feel like a lot of identity formation things happened in Lexington for me. I would say that growing up, I had like somewhat conflicting, intersecting identities. On the one hand, I was a queer kid. I was a Black kid in schools that were mostly white, in classes that were mostly white, in a kind of culture that really was quite homophobic and so like felt like deeply understood what it felt like to be marginalized in spaces and to be feeling like I was invisible but I also had access to a lot of privilege both my parents were attorneys they were the first in their families to go to law school but my brother and I grew up pretty solidly middle class always had food on the table, roof over our heads. When it came time to go to college, I took an ACT prep class to help me do better on an ACT. So I, I think that like my relationship with my own identity is, I think, informed by a lot of those kind of intersections. But anyways, I when I decided to go to UNC, I was, I think, really excited. Similarly, I went because it was the cheapest option after student aid was applied. That was basically my primary question about where to go to school. But I also kind of expected Chapel Hill to be a little bit of a kind of less racially hostile place than what I experienced previously. And while that was true to an extent, it was also very much not true. At the time, at least Chapel Hill was really going through a racial reckoning that I think much of the country later followed. 2015 was the first time that I saw a white supremacist rally, uh, which was like on campus on the way to class. And it was, you know, men and women with Confederate flags and hateful signs yelling slurs at students as they passed by. 
And I remember thinking to myself, like, wow, like I grew up in the South my entire life. I'm coming here from Kentucky and like the first white supremacy rally that I'm encountering here is like on campus at UNC and feeling very much like there was a lot to be done. Then in 2016, Donald Trump was elected and the racial like hostility on campus, I think, continued to be worse. 2017 is when I first heard about this case and was asked if I'd be interested in joining as a defendant intervener. And I felt like as one of few African-American men on campus at the time, as someone who was familiar with affirmative action because of how closely my parents benefited from affirmative action in their law school careers, and also just given that there were so many other student activists leading on so many different issues on campus, like Maya Little and her effort to remove monuments to the Confederacy from campus, that kind of being involved with the affirmative action case was a way that I could contribute, that I felt well positioned to contribute, and that like I knew could make a difference for other students. Thank you so much for sharing. I know that you talked about how there was a racial reckoning on your campus at the time that you were there. I knew it seems like you were there at a really interesting time. Could you talk a little bit about how you feel like your UNC experience was shaped by your identities? I think like the first piece of context that I like to provide is that UNC is like roughly 18,000 undergraduates around 4,500 folks in each class, but you often have less than 200 Black men in each class of 4,500. So like, even as we had this relatively diverse learning environment, there were still very few people who looked like me. So like that would lead, for example, to being in classes where the topic of affirmative action would come up, you know, a racist statement would be made And I would be like one of maybe two African-Americans in the room and kind of looked upon to to respond, which I usually did not feel comfortable doing. But in terms of, I think, the broader campus situation, I mean, a lot of it was coming to head around this statue called Silent Sam, uh, which was a monument to the UNC students who had died fighting for the Confederacy. And there was a lot of student activism around trying to take this statue down, uh, trying to contextualize, you know, the harms that the Confederacy continues to bring to UNC as a state, North Carolina as a state, UNC as a campus. And because the state legislature at the time had decided to intervene uh, in the issue of removing statues and monuments from college campuses, given, you know, how much protest was going on 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 the issue. Uh, It became a very kind of politically strife situation. I think it's an excellent example, though, of the power of student activism. Ultimately, students pulled down the statue. I think this was in 2018, led by Maya Little, pulled down the statue. And by doing that, completely changed the politics Uh, of the situation. I think before there was this politics around, you know, do we take down this Confederate statue? Once the students pulled it down in protest, the politics became, well, who's going to put up this Confederate monument in 2018? And so 
uh, you know, it's just, it speaks to the power of what's happening in student activism. And I think that this case was happening kind of in the background for a lot of that, but I think that's, you know, really exactly right. Uh, in the way that the student activists at the time were really, I think, leading the, the primary kind of campus effort to achieve racial justice at UNC. Ooh, thank you so much for that. That's that's really powerful, honestly. And I, I appreciate the way you kind of framed all of these things that were happening in UNC's campus and kind of giving a little bit more background to some of the issues that, you know, are kind of like prologue in the case here. Um, you know, they may not be explicitly mentioned, but these are all of the things that are going on in the backgrounds for students all across the United States. And so I really appreciate you sharing your story and the things that you've seen and heard that's so important. And so I'll move on to the next question. We know that the Supreme Court could decide that schools are barred from considering race in admissions. Itzel, could you tell me how this would have impacted your ability to describe yourself and your qualifications in your admissions materials? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a great question and and one that I've thought about now more (laughs) since getting involved with the affirmative action case at Harvard. But I think should the Supreme Court decide that schools are barred from considering race in admissions? At least for me, I really don't know how I would have applied to college. <laughs> I think everything that I've done, the way that I see the world and the way that the world sees me is is through a particular lens. And so I would be greatly limited in how I would even begin to describe myself. So for instance, you know, my name, my name is Ixel, which is a variation of the Maya word Ixel. And it's a pretty common name in Mexico. And it's it's a name with indigenous roots. So even so far as just my first name, I don't know how I would describe my life or myself without referencing my ethnicity and racial identity. So for my college admissions application, one of my essays was entirely based on me writing about my Latina Chicana identity and how I came to grips with that in middle school and high school and how I learned to take pride in my sense of self and develop a sense of empathy through that. So I think, yes, that was one out of the two essays that I wrote for my college admissions. And I really don't know what else I would have written about or how else I could describe my experience as a young Chicana from Southern California who went through the public school system here in the state. There was a point during our testimony back in 2018 for the Harvard admissions case, where I believe part of my essay was shown on the screen and half of the essay was blacked out. And those blacked out parts were points where I referenced my identity in some way. And so I'm not sure how admissions folks would be able to read any of my essays or really interpret any of my admissions packet if they're not allowed to take my identity into consideration. In addition to the essay itself, a lot of the extracurriculars that I was a part of in high school were tied in large part to my identity and to my culture and heritage. So I was a leader in our high school's Latino club and our high school Spanish club. Again, because I'm a Latina por descent, and this was something that was of personal importance to me and that I wanted to, to be a part of in high school. And then I also had a letter of rec that touched on volunteer work 
that I had done in high school that was focused on Native and Latina students in our high school's academic program. So I'm not sure how admissions would take a look at any of my packet without being able to consider my identity. So at this point, if there was if they there was no ability, I mean, your admissions packet would be basically obliterated. (laughs) Yeah, that's so unfortunate. Andrew, could you also talk about how something like this would have impacted your ability to describe yourself and your qualifications? Yeah, I was in a very similar bucket. I think when I applied to college, frankly, I was still working through how my different identities intersected with one another uh, and how that related to kind of how I was interacting with the world. And I wrote about that in my college essay about classmates in high school calling me things like Oreo, which meant black on the outside and, and white on the inside. Like I just wrote about that pretty frankly. And so the idea that you know, somehow someone would be able to evaluate my qualifications for admission to the university without understanding, I think, what was like a core element to how I understood my application to that university and as myself as a person at the time, just is really, really confusing to me. And I, and I think the concern is that in a world where folks aren't able to consider race and admissions, and this has kind of been reflected at other schools, it becomes harder to maintain levels of racial diversity uh, in school. And I think about my time at UNC, you know, all of the student activism that I just explained was led by students of color, women of color, trans women of color. And so you literally lose people who are just speaking truth to justice when you're not able to maintain incredible amounts of, of racial diversity on campuses that are clearly still struggling to come to terms with racial injustice in their past. Ooh, thank you for that. That was a word. You both actually touched on my next question just a little bit, which was, you know, what do, from your perspective, what do colleges and universities have to lose here? If you all have anything uh, that you wanted to add and sprinkle on top of that question, feel free. Yeah, I can touch on a piece there, something I don't think I, I got to talk about quite yet. But I think that's something that colleges and universities stand to lose if they are unable to consider race and admissions is really losing a key part of education that I think happens in universities and colleges, which is learning from your cohort, learning from your peers, learning outside of the classroom. So for me in particular, I learned so many skills and lessons outside of class. So for instance, I was part of many Latine-focused groups at Harvard, and Harvard's Latina community looked very different than the Latina community that I was used to growing up in Southern California. So at Harvard, I was exposed and met people who were from the Caribbean, who were Afro-Latinx, who were Central American, who were undocumented, or whose families came from various different parts of Latin America that I hadn't really been exposed to before. And in being in community with these folks, I learned so much just from conversations that we had, events that we hosted. Again, all of this outside of the classroom, not offered by the university itself. And so I think not having a diverse cohort of students is really to the detriment of students themselves and the university as a whole, because you just miss out on such critical information and learning opportunities. 
that you can learn and glean skills from that you can take into your career, but that also just make you a better person and a better, you know, quote unquote, citizen of the world. Thank you so much for that. And for all of you, Taylor, it's Andrew, what message would you share with young people who are approached by advocates to participate in a civil rights case? I'll jump in. Being involved in civil rights litigation is not for everybody. Sometimes it can be very, very long and you have no idea what you're quite getting yourself into. And it requires you to sort of take a step back and to zoom out and think about what it is your end goals really are. But I'd say that it is also an opportunity to get involved in something like Andrew mentioned earlier, if it's bigger than yourself and that is an opportunity to meaningfully make a difference in countless other people's lives by pushing the law and our systems to be true to what they put on paper and to really provide all of us with equal access to justice, equal access to higher education, equal access to jobs, equal access to thrive and survive in the 21st century. Thank you for that. It's so you mentioned that you hadn't envisioned you know, still being kind of involved in this case so many years later when you just kind of signed your name, what advice would you give to someone who is debating or contemplating whether they should sign their name? Yeah, that's a great question. And I I don't know that anyone was asking this back in 2015 (laughs) when we were approached, but definitely would have been helpful and something I think about now. But I think for folks who are sort of on the fence or considering joining a case or being active or part of a case, I would encourage you to do it if you can. If that is something you have capacity for, if it is something that you are able to do, I would encourage folks to go for it. Like your story is so powerful, sacred, and is so true to yourself. And it can be used to bring about positive changes in the world. And so for me, just getting an opportunity to share my story and have it be part of legal precedent here in this country is is insane. It's something that I, I never would have imagined for myself. And it just goes to show how powerful our stories are. And so I think if you have that opportunity to share, if you have that level of privilege where you can be a part of a case, like definitely go for it. And I'll just throw in that the advocates, at least at the lawyers committee that were working with us, on the Harvard Affirmative Action case, they have been so fantastic and just so supportive. They've really made this process as easy as it can be for us student amici, or at least for myself. It was easier than I thought it would be being a part of this case. And there's just a group of lawyers and organizations that are are behind this work and are really there to support students so that we can just continue to share our stories. So definitely encourage folks to do it if you can. Thank you so much. Andrew, what would you say to your former self? Is there anything that you would have told yourself back then? Um, Something that you should have known then and now you've known, now you've learned? I don't know. I mean, I think that in terms of being involved with cases like these, I would just encourage people to do something. Like, what I appreciated about the case was that it was a way for me to be involved in the racial justice movements that were being cultivated on campus and around the country, while also maintaining my commitments to other work that I had going on. And it was just, it was that for me at the time. And I think people should 
figure out ways that they can leverage their strengths and their free time and their capacity that they have while also saving time for themselves to like contribute to these like larger systemic efforts. Um, so if it's not joining a case, it's you know, something else. And then I would also just say, I think for this case, the number one thing that I'm worried about as we get closer to the oral arguments and then also the decision is just how easy it is for folks to kind of adopt a, a real kind of zero sum mindset and kind of conversation around this case. I've heard already uh, this being talked about Black students taking the places of white students on campus. And I just, I want to encourage advocates and folks talking about this and everyone to just remember that we don't have to be vulnerable to these kind of zero-sum mythologies that having like diverse campuses and workplaces and institutions supports everyone. It it improves everyone's experience, improves outcomes for everyone. And that like, even as, you know, folks who are, have ulterior motives are kind of using race to divide us, that we should really resist that, especially in this case. Thank you so much. I have the final question of the podcast. I'm probably most excited for this question, but if you could tell the justices of the Supreme Court anything, what would you say? Anybody can jump in. (laughs) So I'm going to limit what I'd say to them to anything about this case um, and about affirmative action. (laughs) I'm going to keep that kind of smaller. I would say that affirmative action is more than just a hot button topic. It's a critical set of programs intended to help our nation take affirmative steps towards achieving equal opportunity for all people, especially historically marginalized communities. And race-conscious admissions programs are an important tool for universities and colleges to use in order to ensure equal access to opportunity for all students. That was so diplomatic. Thank you. Um, I would probably just say that I don't believe my qualifications for admission to college can be properly evaluated without considering my race, which is a central part of my identity. And I would just add, I think to Andrew's earlier point, that race-conscious admissions policies really help all students, right? It's not just Black and Brown students or BIPOC students. Our entire country and society and student body benefits when people of all backgrounds are included and are able to attend universities. And I think universities and colleges stand to lose so much from this case, right? It's not just about Harvard, not just about UNC. It's really about higher education here uh, in the U.S. as a whole and by extension, the world. And so I would just urge them to really think, think more broadly about this and take a step back and see, to Andrew's earlier point, just how these policies are really to the benefit of everyone. Thank you all so, so much for sharing this incredible experience, all of your amazing insights. I mean, I'm just, I'm just sitting here stunned. I have goosebumps. I've wanted to cry multiple times here listening to your stories. And just, I want to thank all three of you, but in particularly our students for your bravery, right? And compassion and your willingness to think beyond just your own individual experience and participating in these cases. And now continuing to share outside of the context of the case to our listeners. So just thank you for taking the time and for your amazing work. Thank you to Micaiah hosting your first ever Adire Class Notes podcast. Great job. 
If anyone wants to learn more about this case, you can visit the Defend Diversity webpage at www.defenddiversity.org. It's got a lot of great information and advocacy tools. You can also read the ECRA amicus brief, which IDRA participated in, on the IDRA webpage associated with the resources in this podcast. We're so appreciative that you listened in, and we'll all be listening in on October 31st at Oral Argument when the Supreme Court hears this case. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.